Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is The Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, this is Tom Dioro. Thank you, Shay. For our guest today, please welcome Lewis Butler, architect and principal of Butler Architects, an award-winning high-end residential architecture firm in the Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. For over 30 years, the firm has specialized in new and remodeled homes throughout San Francisco, Napa Valley, Sonoma, Stinson Beach, and Atherton. For more information, you can visit www.butlerarmsden.com. That's www.butlerarmsden.com. Hello, Lewis. We're happy and honored to have you on The Modern Architect today. Good afternoon, Tom. Thank you for having me. Lewis, can you share with us a bit of history and your time as an architect, maybe some early inspirations for you as an architect? Yes, I can. I'm one of these simple architect stories where I discovered my dad's drafting instruments from when he was a a student at MIT in a drawer in the house when I was seven or eight years old and wanted to know what those were. Nice. And got them out, and they were the old India ink-type pens and very, frankly, difficult instruments to operate. But I insisted on making a mess and trying them and getting India ink on things where it wouldn't come back out. And I just got hooked and I loved it. And to do a bit of a fast forward, always liked to draw, always liked buildings, worked in construction, went out of my way to kind of get involved in that type of thing, drawing, construction, even worked for a heating and plumbing firm one summer just to understand that part of it. Built a couple of houses when I was at Stanford with friends. We designed and built the houses ourselves. That's t- while you were still in school? 21 and 22 Whoa. years old while we were still in school. Whoa. One of my earliest jobs is kind of interesting. It was for a guy named Victor Scheiman. If you do a timeline That's of robotics, awesome. Victor Scheiman is that part of the timeline on the far left where robotics is kind of going from a, you know to a to from a semi to an erect state right okay, he is yeah. the father of robotics and i remodeled his house right off Alma street in palo alto that was you know 1977 somewhere in there so for me it was uh, it's actually very stanford based a lot yeah. of my experience but it really started very early yeah uh, i'll say 21 and you so how did you find him i'm curious i answered an ad a plain old ad on a bulletin board back when that's no. how you did things is yes. that how we did it he said hey looking for someone who knows how to remodel my home or? Yes, it's, it's it's kind of like that next Call door uh, site, except uh, yeah, except it was probably up in the uh, you know some, somewhere near Trusted or somewhere like that. Who knows? I have no idea. But I called him. He called back, and he had an Eichler, and I remodeled it. I had no idea the guy was on his way or was already being famous at that time. So that was kind of a fun story. Oh, that is awesome. So your background is in engineering as well, right? Yes. Now, a story I have to tell you. Please, we're full of stories today. uh, Yeah, (laughs) you've caught on quick. Uh, So (laughs) I arrived at Stanford as an 18-year-old and realized that my advisor was out of the engineering department. So I went to see my advisor, my professor advisor, Mm -hmm. and said there must be some kind of mistake you're in the engineering department, and I put down architecture as my interest. And he said, no, there's no mistake. The reason you have an advisor in the engineering department is because the architecture program was canceled two years ago. So Stanford canceled its professional program (laughs) in 73. I arrived in 75. Clearly, as an 18-year-old, I wasn't doing my college research very well. (laughs) And I said, oh, well, uh, you're an engineer, and I'm in your office, so I'll be an engineering major. That was a casual decision at the time. It was a much harder thing to do than I thought. But really? So I, for okay. me, engineering was kind of a 135 unit out of 180, as all Stanford students know. The system <clears throat> is still the same, I assume. 
very long slog through a major. But what I did to make the best out of it is I took courses in a lot of environmental engineering. And Gil Masters, who I think is still here, was had a fabulous course. And I took a lot of courses in art history. And there was a guy named Kurt Forrester there at the time, went on to become very well known on the East Coast, very well thought of, and a fabulous art history professor. So I, I kind of made, made the, the best of the uh-huh. major, but I was a terrible engineer. And I knew it early on. So I just decided engineering would be something I would do because it would be a good background, but it was it never developed into a love. And I, I, I can explain that in a, why that is if you want to know. I do, please. We all do. Well yeah, how did the, that that's a very interesting foundation here. Engineers are trained to solve problems. As far as I can tell, architects are trained to create problems. Okay. So if you have a choice between the two, you, can, you might as well be the problem creator rather than the problem solver. But, you know, in another, stated another way, engineers are, are there to come up with answers and architects really ought to be coming up with good questions. And that's how the system like the uh, really works the best. And I still believe that to be true. So anyway, now I'm an architect, but I did do a long training session as an engineer. Yeah, definitely. Here. And that background obviously has got to help you on a day-to-day basis. Not as much as you'd think. Really? Yeah. Hey, tell me why. Um, why. Why? I would think so. Engineering is a subset of architecture. Subset, okay. It's an important subset to the layperson. You would think that it is really the whole thing, the way the building stands up. But a building is really an organic thing with a lot of moving pieces. And engineering is a very important part of it, but it is still a subset. And it can be, if the architecture is a bridge, obviously it's more dominant than that. But if it's a one-story building, it's probably less dominant than that. It really, really depends on on the, the exercise. I don't want to bash engineers. I love engineers. But architecture is driven by the art side, not the engineering side. And so you just have to distinguish between the art side and the numbers side. And I think the best architecture is practiced when the art side leads first and the numbers side is you know, reconciles itself at the right time. Yeah. Now, this is this is quite a bit of a, a sidebar, but uh, we were discussing music. Has music influenced any of your uh, your architecture ever? You know, at least mentally, where you've gotten either an inspiration or a, a solved a problem or maybe asked a better question? You know, that's, that's an interesting question. I'm going to have to answer probably not that much. I, I like music. You and I were talking mm-hmm. earlier before the show. Although I'm not musical, my two kids are very musical. And so I'm inspired by their appreciation of their art, which is music amongst their other interests. And I I think that inspiration certainly translates into my dedication to kind of what I do, certainly the artistic part of what I do. But literally, did a piece of music ever translate into a building? No, I could never tell you that was the case. No but more than a movie would or than a play or, or anything else or a book even, okay. uh, I think. I'm, I'm curious how, how you, uh, your children got into music, even though uh, you, know, it, you said it hasn't influenced. It, it hasn't influenced your work, but it's definitely influenced your children. Well, yes. And they started piano lessons when they were young, and they were good at it. And the piano teacher, we were very lucky, as a very dedicated uh, Russian woman who had been at the highest level in Russia and I think immigrated to the United States in the 1990s. And when most parents were driving their kids to soccer games on Saturday morning, I was driving our kids from San Francisco to San Ramon for these fairly intense piano lessons. Yeah, Yeah. and I got to really love it because we got to spend time in the car together. But then our son went from piano to guitar to bass guitar to saxophone, drums. I'm leaving a couple out to become an entire rock and roll band. Our daughter became a very accomplished choral singer. Uh, So are the parents musical on a day-to-day basis? No. You know, their mother's a writer, my wife, as well as being an architect. And I'm an architect, and they're very musical. And so that 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 runs in our evidently that runs in our family. Yeah, Lewis, talk about your your wife's book as well. I really it it, it really captivated me, and I, I mean that sincerely. Just just reading the excerpt on it, and what what inspired her to write the book? The book, and she has always wanted to write, and okay. so she and I started our firm together. I started it first, uh, right out of school. Then she joined me a couple of years later, and then we had employees, and we had kids, and she took time off, came back, took time off. That at some point she said, "I I really want to be a writer. This is the thing I want to do." And you know, before one attempts to write a book, understand that if you want to do something artistic, 
especially later in life, you know, learning how to paint a watercolor, picking up an instrument, maybe even learning another language is a much better option than writing a book. <laughs> really? Writing a, book, <laughs> writing a good novel is really, really hard. And how uh, hard would like just to... Uh, well, I think if you were to ask any yeah. of the leading novelists, they would tell you that. You know, it's, it's, wow. it is a massive undertaking at any novel length. Hers is almost 300 pages. And it has to be good. You know, you don't want to write a book and have it be bad. Well, for that matter, you don't want to design a building and have it be bad. <laughs> but it, it, it took her 10 years, lots of editing. It was thrilling when she got it done. It's also very difficult to market books. So you take a Jonathan Franzen, very famous novelist. That guy's on the road for five or six months, you know, selling his books. And he's famous. So, And he lives off his salary as a writer. That's what he does. He's very quick to tell you that. And so writing is hard work. It might not be hard work when you finally get to the pinnacle of the pinnacle, but it is. So she took this exercise very seriously. She's a very good writer. She's a very good technical writer. She's a what we call a grammar queen. When you say something that's not grammatically correct, you do not get away with it. And the book is a study of our relationship to houses. And it's not purely architectural in that respect, nor is it purely emotional and just a narrative of a family in a house. It's really about the connections that people have to houses that one might not have thought of until one really takes the time to think of it. And each chapter begins with a very famous architectural quotation from a very famous architect, Frank Lloyd Wright's in there, Le Corbusier, and a few others that are just fabulous. The first one's really amazing because it actually asserts that there is no perfect house. It can only exist in our mind and can't exist physically. So in that respect, it's ineffable. And Whoa. that kind of turns architecture on its head to, to begin with. So so that's that's where she went with that. And I think she feels very relieved that she got it done. And I think she also feels like, oh my gosh, what should I do now? But I have to respect her for the amount of work it took. It was, and, and it's uncompromising. Again, you have to proofread it perfectly. You have to write it perfectly. It's the, one of the most uncompromising exercises I've ever had the opportunity to, 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 to see firsthand. Well, I'm almost sweating here just hearing about this. It, it, how do you, I'm just curious, like how, um, if you want to say the book or just your practice, how do you capture the, the, the essence of that with your the clients that you work with too, that essence being, what do they really want? And, you know, they say they want something, but is it really what they want? And how do you kind of extract that out of them or bring that out of them to, to, to match that vision that you just talked about that it's in their head? Well, I, if you can, I know, I, I think I can, I, yeah. I, I like to reduce things to as basic a state as I can to try to understand them without oversimplifying. And in the work that I do, I'm dealing with individuals. And I'm dealing with single, single individuals who do the act of building a house in one place at one time. It never happens again, never happened before, right? So it's one person, one place, one time. And so when we start a project like that, you, you know, it's best to relax and understand the individual and what they really want because I'm not, I don't have a template I'm going to pull out and, and say, this is perfect for you. I need to understand where they're going with this. Now, having said that, we don't design, you know, Tudor houses or McMansions or, frankly, things that just don't seem aesthetically pleasing. But beyond that, we do have a certain amount of, I think, artistic latitude, depending on who we're dealing with. And most of the people these days, since we've been around for quite a while, come to us because they like what we do and, therefore, we like what they're after. Mm -hmm. And there's a very nice match. But it's this one person, one place, one time thing that I come back to. This, you get a lot of information out of the site, you get a lot of information out of the person, and it's just a sobering idea that you're doing this physical thing that will exist, and it will come to exist at that one time and carry forward for what could be 50 or 100 years. So if you just think about that for a little while, that's kind of an important kind of event, <laughs> and it of. happens multiple times yeah. a year, and I like to make it special every time. So I think, you know... Back to your original question, I just value the inherent essence of the exercise every time it starts, even though it's my you know five-day-a-week day job, and that makes it kind of fun to have that kind of originality yeah. appear every day, you know, in your in your yeah. in your place of work. Is there a mental process that you go through to capture that essence? I know you don't have a you know a template, but is there a kind of a mental exercise or process that you go through to cap to 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 get that essence? Not a structured one, no. Okay. I think this goes back to the difference between architecture and engineering. It just, 
even if I tried, I couldn't come up with a pattern that occurs. It really is a random thing. It can happen just when you step out the front door of the office and you you know, step into the fresh air and your brain wakes up a bit. You go, oh, I have an idea. And that happens all the time. Uh, so, all the time. Uh, so I think it's really, t- to me, we're very close to our clients. So I think if, if I circle back to what makes it all tick, enjoying the people you work with, enjoying the people that have hired you and really trying to understand what it is that they're after and how you can help them best is is where I come back to. But it doesn't, whether it's comparing it to music or, or an artistic structure, I can't tell you that exists because okay. it's a very social profession. Uh, social least. is in, you know, obviously, talking, uh, personal. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I go to a cocktail party from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. five days a week. Between <laughs> See, yeah. a cocktail party for me, that sounds like a fun That's yeah, 50 hours of cocktail party a week. So, <laughs> that sounds um, fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a non-alcoholic party. Between, <laughs> so he says. <laughs> you know, so I say, so now between my employees who I love, who are all younger than yeah. I am, and some a lot younger, and my clients who I really enjoy, who, by the way, are all younger than I am, some a lot younger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See a pattern here? I do. So, to me, it, I just enjoy the social dynamic of being with those people and coming up with ideas and getting excited together when good things happen. This week, we had a very exciting Tuesday, for instance, because we are we proposed to the Belvedere Design Review Board the single most modern house ever built in Belvedere. Whoa, how, 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 like how modern? It's okay. this floating stone kind of cubist house, two stories that's right on the water with a dock. And there's the, the, the pier that goes to the, to the dock, floats out over a swimming pool and kind of descends in the bay. And there's this dock floating out there, no railings because you don't want that fuss and muss of railings. You just <laughs> fall in the water. And it's, it's a decidedly modern house. It's a decidedly contemporary house. And that's the way I addressed the Belvedere Design Review Board. I said, I, I have to tell you, this house is a modern house. It's meant to be modern. It doesn't work as a semi-modern house. It doesn't work as a compromised idea. It is in front of you for what it is, and what it is is a modern, purist idea about a house. And they sent us back to the drawing board for some revisions after the September meeting, and on Tuesday night this week, they voted for the project. Excellent. And they voted yeah, for it excellent. with great appreciation. They said there's been a history going back to the 50s of people experimenting architectural, architecturally in Belvedere, and we want to keep that experiment going. So that was very exciting because my team, two other people in the office, and myself have worked very hard in this project. We weren't backing off, and it worked. That, that does not happen every week or every year even. So that was that was a lot of fun. That's terrific. I noticed you have a lot of what I call, uh, it's a musical term again, range. Yes. Is that, am I correct in that? I, I noticed, like, oh, look at that. And it, it's not really, it's signature in that it's it's kind of a timeless. I know you say future or modern is home, but I think 100 years from now, that home may, not, may still look appropriate. Is that? That's dead on. Okay. We do a lot of remodeling of existing houses in San Francisco. Most houses in San Francisco are about 100 years old. So they are built according to what people thought 100 years ago a house should be like. And what people thought a house should be like 100 years ago is still appreciated by some, but it's really not the way most people live these days, primarily spatially, but also technologically and in many other ways. There were no Cars were not an important part of people's life 100 years ago. They were about 80, 80, 90, but not 100. So when we remodel an old house, we are often, because of the codes and so forth, kind of encouraged to keep the older look of the outside of the house. But yet we have these clients who are, again, young, they're raising families, and they want to live a different way. So sometimes, although our, our projects are very modern, they have to exist within a historic context, and we have to simultaneously make the statement, we live in these houses that are older, and there is something nice about that, and there's a nice context, there's a nice history there. I'm not throwing that away at all. Mm-hmm. But within that context, there is a very bold statement about looking ahead, uh, that kind of layering of time that, that, that occurs. It's much clearer if you go to Rome, Paris, London, where the cities are older, especially Rome, because you have those thousands of years for modern ideas to bounce off of traditional ideas. It's much harder in San Francisco because San Francisco's such a young city. The oldest building in San Francisco is Mission Dolores, 1776. That's not an old building by any other country's 
uh, no, time frame. Yeah. But that's the oldest we've got. And most of the houses we think of in San Francisco were built in the 1850s, really mainly 60s, 70s, and after that. So we're dealing with a very young city with a certain housing stock that's on average about 100 years old. And now we're dealing with a new crop of young people who want to live in those houses, but with a new idea about space and going forward. And our job is to not destroy the history, but create a future idea at the same time. So, Jeez, How do you hang on to that sort of integrity? I mean, I, mean, I, I don't, don't know if that's the right word, but... I think that's easier, at least for me, than you okay. might think, because I, I like the tension. I like the opposites. I like the polarity of it. I, I think the polarity actually creates kind of a balance that's exciting. I, I, I don't take this. Whoa. I, I don't take this view that okay. one is good and the other is bad. For instance, newness does not take away from, from history or oldness, right? Modernism does not take away from classicism. These things don't exist at the detriment of the other thing. It should become additive where all of these things layer and add something exciting and, and worthwhile to what came before them. So we, I have, I guess, this kind of optimistic additive idea, which is I'm going to come in with a new idea. I'm going to layer it on an old idea. I'm going to leave enough of that old idea so you get it. And I'm going to leave enough of that new idea so you really get it. That's where I'm headed with the whole thing. Whoa, very well framed. Uh, no pun intended. That's just, <laughs> wow. Okay, so you, you, you've got this. So that's how you uphold that. So you're, in essence, taking the torch and passing it on. Well, to, always. To, yeah, always. Okay, well, not every. Not, that's not common. Actually, I think I'm going to take the torch and hold on to it for a while. I'm not done yet. <laughs> I like that. Hold on to it for a while. <laughs> I'm not giving it to anybody yet. <laughs> that's great. So, so you've got that torch again. Going to that. What, what's is this um, pervasive in your company? I mean, your, your, the culture, how how you kind of I, think, I think and are. Is it is it yeah. a requirement to be at the work with you? That sort of mindset and uh, you know, kind of gearing. Well, it's a requirement. You know, our company has been in existence over 30 years now, and it's 25 people. It probably will go up to even before this later, latest catastrophic fire. It was growing anyway. It is, again, people have been with me for as long as 18 years, 15 years, many of them 15 years, seven years, eight years. It's actually a company for bioarchitectural standards that's quite cohesive in that its employees have been together for a long time. Uh, other architecture companies tend to tend to you know, turn over employees. They go off and they do other things. We're very, very long-term about the people we work with. So, yes, they, they, they like, if they were hearing, which they will, what I'm saying to you right now, they like that. Okay. They they like that daily. They rely on that, and they're just a huge part of, of how we how we can be as effective as we can be. Excellent. This is the Modern Architect KZSU ninety point one FM Stanford. Operation USA helps communities across the nation and around the world deal with disasters, disease, and poverty by providing privately funded relief and other aid. The organization's philosophy is to offer material and financial assistance to grassroots organizations that can help with sustainable development, education, and health services. More than 97% of the money donated to Operation USA goes to its programs. If you'd like to donate, please visit opusa.org. That's opusa.org. Now back to the Modern Architects on KZSU Stanford. We're talking today with Lewis Butler, architect and principal of Butler Armston Architects, an award-winning high-end residential architecture firm in the Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. Lewis, I know we, we touched on it earlier, the range. Share with me a bit, or our audience, a bit about that range and how you kind of came about that sort of range. If, if there was an either an incident or a moment of inspiration where you, you kind of felt that that range, like, you know what, I can handle this and I can handle that. What what? Yeah, yeah. So, so speaking directly of range, I mean, if you put a kind of a numerical spectrum on range, let's think about it like a dial, and okay. and on the left is zero, and on the right is ten, or on the left is green, and on the right is red. Whatever you want to do. Let's just okay. say that the right, like it is typically when you talk about politics, is conservative, it's traditional, it's traditional architecture. And on the left are very contemporary buildings. And so if one were to think of a local one, it might be the new Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco or the De Young or these buildings that are, are come right out with the idea of being a new idea about a building or Rem Koolhaas's public library in Seattle, just a whole new kind of concept about a building. Those That's far left. We practice kind of in a 
middle to, to left third of the range, right? We're really not okay. doing super classical things and actually are headed towards the left more than the right. But then the entire kind of architectural sentiment on the West Coast, at least, is headed more left than right, which is nice. So the range is a modernist range, and where it gets more traditional is when we're handed a traditional envelope of an existing house. So if I were to practice where every single building were a ground-up building, that might narrow my range a bit, but I'm in a practice where at least half of what we do, if not more, is remodeling, so that broadens my range because I'm dealing with existing context okay. all the time. Let me bear down on that answer a bit. I'm not someone who's stylistically dogmatic. I'm stylistically inclusive. So if Say that you, again, stylistically inclusive? Yes. Okay. I, I think that more can be brought into the thinking than less. So I, there are many architects out there, and they are, and they are good ones who really are much tighter about their aesthetic and are much truer to the actual visuals of what they do with every building, and that's fine. Just think about, you know, an architect like Mies van der Rohe, or for a historical example, his buildings were in a very tight aesthetic range, and they were stunningly beautiful, but they were very similar to one another, even across a fairly long range of time. We're happy to experiment a little bit more on kind of all sides of the stylistic spectrum. But again, we are not interested in historic reproduction. We're always interested in something that contains a look-forward element to the design. So in terms of range, what that really means is that I'm, I'm more accepting of a broader range because it, to me, is a little bit more of a reflection on the reality of the world that we live in. You know, the range of the world is not narrowing, it's broadening right here yeah. where we sit. Yeah. <laughs> I see no reason to narrow my thinking about things aesthetically or otherwise when everything else is broadening. So that kind of inclusivism and willingness to accept a broad range is reality more yeah. than it is almost preference. Yeah. Now, do you share that with your clients as well, or do they have an expectation that that's how you are going to be before you even work with them? I'm very clear with my clients okay. about that. That's an important part of what we do. Okay. You know, I, I tell them, I'm not here to show you a building and say, hey, you'll look great in this, right? <laughs> you look fantastic. You know, I'm here to hear what you have to say and because you need your ideas in your house. And your house will be better if your ideas are in it. And I'm going to make your ideas good. That's my job, to make your ideas good and add my ideas too. And a whole lot of other stuff that maybe it's secret sauce, whatever you want to call it. But, <laughs> yeah, that's but, awesome. But, no, and really, that's freaking, oh, that's great. <laughs> Lewis has a great sense of humor. So speaking of humor, we'll go into it after you finish, please. All right. So uh, anyway, next question. Peter Sellers. I mean, oh, we yeah. really jumped here. But since we're laughing. Peter Sellers, your experience with Peter Sellers. Well, you and I were in the station, you know, for 30 seconds, and we we hit a 100-mile-an-hour conversation. And and all I can think of is, like, like if this is what it's like half an hour before this radio interview, how am I going to keep up the stamina for the interview? But one of the things we hit on, and I forget how, is that I was at a Northeastern boarding school before I came to Stanford, and my neighbor across the hall was the playwright and genius and, you know, rock star in all respects, Peter Sellers, who Mm -hmm. wrote Dr. Atomic and Nixon in China and so forth, and he was my next-door neighbor. And I'd never met anybody like him before. I still haven't met anybody (laughs) like him before. He used to play E-Power Biggs, Full Blast. If you don't know who E-Power Biggs is, you've got to listen to E-Power Biggs. And Full Blast? Full Blast. Oh, no. E-Power Biggs was the famous organist. Some people would be disturbed. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And then Peter Sellers would take over the Andover Theaters. That's where I was in school. And he would put on these incredible full-size Japanese puppet versions of Shakespearean plays. I mean, he was at 100 miles an hour at 16 years old. So that was an early influence on me because I was... It kind of wandered out to Andover almost by mistake from the West Coast. And, you know, the first day, there's this guy. There's this guy, uh, and not just a guy. Not just a guy. And I still see him every once in a while, and he's the warmest, nicest person you would ever meet. Really? Uh, yeah. And one of the most eloquent people I have ever heard speak, ever. I mean, incredibly accomplished fellow. So what does that mean in this conversation? It's important to meet people who are supremely artistic early in life, I suppose, and and be able to just say, wow— that was an important experience. We went to all Peter Sellers' plays when I was in high yeah. school. We, you wouldn't miss them ever. So, and then you and I were saying later, 
that I got to Stanford, and I was in freshman dorm. Yeah, oh, you got to tell that one about the turntable behind the head. <laughs> no, that, I'm not going to tell that that's one. That's a great story, <laughs> okay. though. But, but David Henry Wang, who's in the New yeah. York Times today, along with Clive Owen and Julie Tamor, about his M. Butterfly being staged again, and he's a rock star. And so I had these back-to-back experiences with these wonderful people who I was in the same dormitory yeah. with. So that was still, it was inspiring, still very inspiring. The story. Lewis, don't think it didn't rub off on you. Yeah, you, may, well, you may be, you know, gracious about it, but in your own space, that actually I thought it was a good word. Is there's an, an eloquent timelessness, and I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but I just came up with it with with the work that I see that you're doing or that you continue to do because it's, it defies description. Well, I will ask yeah. my wife if grammatically if, if that's grammatically no, correct because yeah. she'll know. Okay. Uh, I, <laughs> okay. I, I, will, I will not, and and I think you know we don't have to tell the turntable story except that when you're in, well, no. Here's where, here's where it's relevant. I, I, Lewis, uh, you have to tell me. Yeah, how it's here's relevant. here's how I think it's relevant is because it, it, you weren't able to see the turntable at night before you went to sleep. So you had to gauge where you put, placed your arm and to take it off the, the album. I can't recall which album you were talking about, but... It was uh, George Shearer. Okay. That you would take it off and then set it down and then that would be it. But in order to do that on a turntable, you could have just scratched all over the place and not get it right. But you had to feel your way to put it to put to set it right. Well, I'm, there's I, the, there's the connection. It's a very spatial thing. Okay, uh, there you go. So, so there we go. Uh, but uh, yeah, my roommate and I enjoyed the same music, and so we had this ritual where I we put on a side of a vinyl old fashioned record, which you have a lot of here, which is great to see. And my job, and the turntable was right behind my my head on a table. My job was to be awake enough to pull the uh, stylus, I guess it's uh-huh, called, yeah. out of the center of the record and put it back on the tray or the cradle when I was asleep. So that was that's the turntable story. Yes, but you, that's the turntable <laughs> but remember, story. remember, I did it every night, so I got good at it. Okay, well, the same thing with architecture. You're doing the same thing because the house isn't built right. You know, your client approaches you or whoever approaches you, and yet you have to take extract that and put it back in its proper place so that you can do it again. Yes. That's how I'm saying the correlation. Okay, is it my close? If I'm off, I'm off, but that's... No, I'm not okay. saying you're off. Okay. I'm just going to expand what you're saying. Okay. Most architects, and I have a particular interest in this, have a primary interest in spatial concepts, right? So three-dimensional, fully spatial concepts. You expect a certain order in space and, and, and three dimensions. This is just not about <clears throat> symmetry. This is about, you know, full three dimensions. So if that ties it all together, yes, perhaps that ties it all together. Yeah. But, but an architect has that kind of brain. And so when you walk into a room and something's out of order, or if it's, it's ill-proportioned, or if it's ill-lit, or if something's in the wrong place, you just, it's out of balance and you feel it. So that kind of balance order and kind of artistic balance and order in particular is appreciated by architects. It is that's not symmetry, or it's not things that are boring. It's a very abstract concept, balance, order, and that type of thing. It's still bringing it, bringing it to life. You also talked about. I'm going to touch on that word again, and I'm, uh, the range factor. It's like the third time. So like, come on already. But no, I think it, it, it's relevant. Are you like working all the time in your in your brain, even though you have you know nine to five, eight to five, eight to six, whatever your hours are? Right. So even off hours, are you still thinking about projects, ideas, solutions? You know, it's, can you turn it off? Not, no, okay. Not at all. So you can't turn it. There's no, no turn it off. No. Okay. No, I, I haven't been to a place without wireless in twenty years for a day. Oh. Yeah, oh, oh, trans, trans, you know, Pacific flight, maybe. So I, I just decided early on, okay, this is the way we're going to live and we're going to be connected all the time and I'm not going to turn it off. And that suits me fine. Now, well, is that a great long-term strategy? Maybe not, but it, it, my personality likes the go, go, go part. So I, and I like doing things. I don't like not to be busy. I'm going to work for a long time and I like doing new things. And I think where the range works back into this is that, Again, to expand your term, I plan on working in a you know fairly wide range stylistically in a fairly wide chronological range, and maybe someday in a wide geographic range. I, I'm just not the person kind of person who's runs around looking for something to call a limit necessarily. <laughs> uh, having said that, having said that, actually, our practice is intensely local. It's basically San Francisco, Napa, Sonoma, Marin, and increasingly more work down here. On purpose? Is this on purpose? I think the local part is somewhat on purpose. I don't have a a great 
desire to travel for business the way some people do. I know people I have clients who get on a plane every Monday and come back every Friday, and that might be Europe or Asia in those five days. At a certain point in time, our house was two blocks from our office and four blocks from our kids' school. You could call that a pedestrian life, you know, yeah. and it's pedestrian. We walked. So I thought that was kind of a, a really? very nice very uh, it is. kind of local way to live. You can do that in the city, obviously, more easily than in the suburbs. But there's more travel to it now. But no, I don't I don't really want to go to Paris to, to work unless it's there's some good reason to do it. So that's, maybe I'm a little bit of a fuddy-duddy there. No, no, I like that. There's a great quote that I've said before. I know the, the author of, who wrote it, Marcel Proust, and he says the equivalent, I'm not going to get it exact because it just came off the top of my head right now, is um, the voyage of discovery is not going to a new place but having a new set of eyes. What's your thoughts on that? I use work for that. Okay. That's what work is to me. Work brings newness every day. And if there's some day I stop working, I'm going to have to figure out where that newness is going to come from. But, uh, and also, you know, I did an interview with Condé Nast Magazine about three months ago or two months ago. And the interviewer's topic was, what has changed in the Bay Area in the last 30 years? And I was thinking, okay, 1987 to 2017. And I said to him, what's the same? Oh. You, you know, you're asking what's changed. That may be yeah. the longer list. There was no internet. There was no Silicon Valley to speak of. The early ones, obviously, Hewlett-Packard. There were no museums in San Francisco to speak of. I mean, there was there were so many things that just weren't here. And so now I have to pick something to talk about that's new, and I just don't know where to start. And so back to your yeah, Proust comment, so much has happened here in 30 years, more so than maybe anywhere, if you think about it, certainly on the technology side. One could have a pretty good time. <laughs> Not going that far, but I don't want to sound like I'm that I'm that pedestrian. You know, I get around. Don't no, worry. no, no, no. <laughs> definitely, this is the modern architect, KZSU. For nearly 100 years, Save the Children has been creating brighter futures for the world's kids. In the U.S. and countries around the globe, Save the Children provides assistance to more than 143 million children. It provides what every child deserves: a healthy start, the opportunity to learn and care when disaster strikes. If you'd like to learn more or make a donation, visit savethechildren.org. That's savethechildren.org. This is KZSU Stanford. Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Lewis Butler, architect and principal of Butler Armston Architects, an award-winning high-end residential architecture firm in the Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. For more information, you can visit www.butlerarmsden.com. That's www.butlerarmsden.com. Lewis, the word unlearn. A lot of, we, we do a lot. A lot of thought is, what do we have to learn? You got to learn this. You got to learn that. But how about, what's your thoughts on just unlearning some things that may have been either not useful, destructive, or, or just not necessary anymore? You know, just the word itself. I'm curious to hear what your take is on, uh, on the word unlearn. You know, one of the nice things about architecture is the unlearning process is, if you're paying attention, kind of ba- baked <laughs> into the... Yeah. Not you, but one is paying attention. <laughs> I know. I know you're paying attention. Is is baked into the process, and I'll give you a an example of that. When you're designing a project, you're deciding what's important. You're highlighting what's important. Other things are becoming subservient to an idea or two ideas, and a ranking and an order and and strong ideas are recognized as ones that can't be lost and and weak ideas to almost ones that are vestigial because they don't have any bearing anymore have to be cast away. And then sometimes what happens is that what you thought was the most important thing suddenly is revealed perhaps, if you're paying attention, not to be the most important thing. It's actually not the thing that should have driven the process. And so the unlearning has to happen, and it has to happen unemotionally. One has to detach. Unemotionally? I haven't heard that. Okay, so well, because ha- people get so emotional about okay. being right. Now, here's one of the interesting things about architecture. It's the last best idea that's important, not the first best idea. The last best idea. The last okay. best idea gets built, not the first best idea. So you have to unlearn bad ideas if they turn out to be bad ideas. And you have to relearn good ideas that you may have thought were bad ideas. So, you know, unlearn, relearn, these two things kind of come together. And one has to be very brave and say, I was wrong. I held on to this thing for weeks, months, 
and it's not important, and we're going to let it go, and we're going to do something else. Now, that does not happen every project, but if it does emerge as something that could be an issue, you better be prepared to unlearn some stuff that you thought you'd learn pretty good and learn yeah. some stuff that you'd ignored. <laughs> yeah. But I think, you know, honestly, this word unlearn, I like the word. I like the fact you brought it up. You gave me a good five or six seconds to react to it <laughs> ahead of time. We can go on. <laughs> that's that's more, more than I usually get. Uh, so <laughs> I think it's worth pursuing because it's it's probably something that most people, including myself, don't do as well as they should. Really? And, and, and do you think it, as we age that it, there's more unlearning to do than even learning? And I, Boy, that was a reach. But yeah. is it possible even? Well, uh, here's just a chronological. Maybe take this off air, but it's. <laughs> well, here's a chronological fact. You know, my dad's 90, and he is really sharp at 90. He was born oh, in 1927. He has lived great. through a lot of eras. He has to decide at 90 how much new he's going to learn and how much old he's going to let go. There are some things that clearly were part of his life that prob- probably don't exist, at least as important to him anymore. You know what I'm saying? They're, they, yeah. they're still there, but they might not be important. And there are new things that he should learn if he can, and he does. He's very good about email and the internet and attachments and all that kind of stuff. 90 years old. Oh, that's uh, terrific. On the other hand, he's still driving. I want him to unlearn that's that. That's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, but he won't unlearn driving. Uh, so there's just a practical <laughs> example, you right? Want to unlearn? Unbelievable. Well, by unlearn driving, I mean I'm I know, not but you're just doing, not yeah. doing it. Yeah, but st- to still say that. Okay, so that, that answers that. That, that kind of segues into another thing that uh, how much of your practice my strong belief is your practice is as egoless as you, I've seen. It's 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 not it doesn't look like your practice has much ego in it. That may sound peculiar because the work is terrific, but h- how do you think that's accomplished? Just, well, I, just just try to analyze what I just said, if you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> do you think it's possible that could someone that someone could have an enormous ego and not let it show? Yes. Maybe, maybe that's what's going. Okay. On. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I mean, be. I'm not. I'm not trying to be provocative, but a holograph. It's like a hologram. Okay. Yeah. No, no. Go into that. I mean, ego gets in the way. So to me, it's not a question of whether you've got ego or not. The the right or wrong doesn't necessarily exist at that state. It's whether you let it get in the way or not. Nice. So if, if, you know, know, there's a certain, especially when you run your own business, as I have from the very beginning, if you're not a little bit egotistical, a little bit arrogant, a little bit, you know, not afraid to be tough about stuff, it's not going to go as well as you want it to. You know, you, you, there's got to be something at the core that operates every morning when you get up that says, I'm going to go do this again, and I'm going <laughs> to hit it pretty hard. And that that takes a certain amount of ego, a certain amount of these other things that I've said. I think the issue is being able to turn it off. And I can be not that good at turning it off occasionally. but Like uh, how? I mean, if you're at liberty. Oh, I, I just come home and I'm still, okay. you know, six, seven at night. I'm still just, you know, <laughs> up at 100 miles an hour. So that's more of a home issue than it is a work issue. But I think it's really important when you're in work environments to not let your ego dominate the room. It's equally important, by the way, at the right time to say, I feel strongly about this. This is a good idea. And this is we're gonna, what we're going to do. And it's also very important, by the way, to tell people what you really think. We live in a world where rarely do people tell each other what they really think, right? What is it, fear? Oh, it's just social standing or yeah. being afraid of making someone mad. I mean, you might tell your spouse or you might tell you know your your close family what you really think about something. But in, in other situ- social situations, people are pretty guarded. And to really get somewhere with ideas, and I'm sure the artists that we've talked about, Peter and David, and these, these people are so yeah. accomplished. I'm sure they have no problem telling people what they think, because I don't see how they would get to where they get to without doing that. That being said, do you think that happened before they got to be as well-known, or do you think they've always had it in it? Oh, I think then, he, I think Peter Sellers was out of the gate, positive about what he wanted to do, and w- was going to do it. And that was, a, you know, that's that kind of, you know, artistic juggernaut so we So in essence... Everyone needs to be that in their own space, do you think? No, I'm more of a facilitator than I am kind of a primary artist type. I need to I need to build buildings. It, it takes a lot of people to build a building, right? I just can't <laughs> strut around the room and be the yeah. boss. Yeah, I know. And, and, and you have to be able to get along with a lot of people to build a building well. I mean, there's budgets, there's there's permits. And we haven't hit on it yet, but an enormous amount of, of my time is spent 
getting through regulatory bodies, getting through neighborhood associations. How much more so than, say, five years ago? Probably a little bit more than five years ago, but I'll tell you something right now. If somebody had stood up in architecture school and said, oh, by the way, if you do this, you'll be dealing with regulatory agencies for 30% of your time, I would have said, oh, well, (laughs) that's not going to be okay. But that's the fact is that we deal with regulatory agencies 30% of our time. I will tell you, though, that there's art in that. And the biggest single obstacle to getting a building built, especially a good one, are the regulatory forces, whether it's, again, the city itself or the neighborhood associations. It's not money. It's not technology. Technology never stops anything. It's people. What people are not used to is one's biggest obstacle if you're in the business I'm in, right? People just Mm -hmm. don't want that. They're not used to it. It's not what they grew up with, right? It's not what they want. And so I have to advocate for ideas that sometimes people aren't accustomed to, and that is a lot of work. But nothing will get done if I don't do that. And this is hearings, this is nights, hanging around with people trying to, you know, in outreach meetings, trying to get them to do stuff. So just in case people didn't realize that, architects who do what I do at any scale, and I've talked to, for instance, Mark Cavaniero, fabulous architect who did the Jazz Center, Oakland Museum. The amount of time he spends, like I do, just meeting with people to try to convince them that you've got the right thing you know, proposed to be done is a is a Huge, huge amount of time. Yeah, well, let's touch back on that in a moment. This is The Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. Modern Tech News from the Bay Area and around the world is a show on KZSU Stanford from 9 to 10 a.m. on Wednesday mornings. Technology news about space, energy, IoT, wearables, sensors, robotics, AI, high-tech innovations in engineering and medicine, and stem cell research. You can check out more information at moderntechnews.com. That's moderntechnews.com. Tune in to KZSU for more of that. And now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Lewis Butler, architect and principal of Butler Armston Architects, an award-winning high-end residential architecture firm in the lovely Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. For more information, you're welcome to visit www.butlerarmsden.com. That's www.butlerarmsden.com. Lewis, we were talking a bit about regulatory issues, and you said something really super interesting. It's an art to work with that. Yes. Not not a pain in the, you know what, but yes. an art. How, how, how so from your perspective? If I take the attitude that the state of California through CEQA, which is the California Environmental mm-hmm. Quality Act, which is a big part of our business, the city of San Francisco, city of Palo Alto, Woodside, a few examples around here, examples of the North Pickier municipality. If I take the idea that their rules are ruining my work, to me, that's defeatist. I have to figure out how their rules can be used to enhance my work. I have to view their regulation as a tailwind. Enhance your work? You've got to flip it. Oh, you completely did that. You flip it. Okay. And once you flip it, you see it in a different way. Now it's art. It's not just a boring agency you know, breathing down your neck. <laughs> it's, it's something that needs to be dealt with artistically and something that needs to be viewed positively. And so we do that, and we're known for being very successful with the regulatory agencies because we just don't view them negatively. And when we go meet with them, we say to them, what is it that we can do to enhance this process for you and for us and for our client? How do we make this something that we're all proud of? And we treat them like equals. These are bureaucrats that work for the city. We don't treat them like they're somebody that's just in our way. We treat them like important people doing an important job. And they are. We bring them into our thinking and say, you know, as in the example I told you about Belvedere on Tuesday, Mm -hmm. and make them feel like they're part of something that's going to be good. That could be laborious. One of our projects that just broke ground after three years of battles, lawsuits, Aaron Peskin, the the supervisor in San Francisco, training his sights on us, trying to defeat us. It's the last empty lot on Telegraph Hill. It's right there across Telegraph Hill Boulevard from Coit Tower. And we propose these three very modern houses that are kind of scaled to Telegraph Hill housing, but very contemporary at the same time. We started this job 
four years ago. We've been battling for three years, again, including all sorts of lawsuits to get it done. We just got a favorable opinion after the appeal from the state of California, and off we go. But you have to settle in and do that and realize that that's what's going to take. And either we do that or no one does that, right? No one had tried to do it before. The law had been open for 20 years. Everybody else said, can't be done. It's just not worth the work. And we just said, you know, it's just time, and we'll be patient, and we'll win. And we did. So now there's going to be this lovely new modern building on Telegraph Hill, nothing like it's been built in a long time. And I'm very proud of it because the basics of why that got done is the idea that regulation and all of this friction cannot be viewed negatively. It has to be viewed as something that in the end will produce a positive result. Now that's, I don't even believe it. How do you emotionally deal with that? Well, I can't now that I said it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was a lot of work. Uh, I don't know if I really feel that positive about it anymore, but but I do feel positive about it because we're, you know, we we won, we're going to build it and I'm very excited. That's terrific. What's your, uh, what's your thought, Lewis, on this quote from, uh, Winston Churchill, we shape our buildings, therefore they shape us. Well, that's what my wife's book about is about. Really? Can we, yeah. Please? I mean, it was her idea before Churchill's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So maybe, so, so maybe a little chronology problem there, but, uh, but, but no, that's what, that's what the book is about is that's a two-way street. Now, Winston Churchill grew up in Blenheim Palace. I don't know if you know anything about Blenheim Palace. Do you ever see, you know, go watch reruns of Brideshead Revisited? Okay. Oh. God knows how that building shaped him. Okay. (laughs) You know, that's a building where— I should get close to the mic here. Yeah, that's a building that is at a scale that is, you know, basically the main quad of Stanford University as a house, right? So so understand that's the house he was talking about. But that quotation is correct, and that quotation will always be correct. Really? That's terrific. Lewis, it's been a, a real privilege having you here. Thank you very much for coming. Oh, absolutely. My my pleasure and happy to do it again anytime. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Look, for, look forward to it. We'd be honored to have you, Lewis. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Lewis Butler, architect and principal of Butler Armston Architects, an award-winning high-end residential architecture firm in Pacific Heights, in the Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. For over 30 years, the firm's specialized in new remodeled homes throughout San Francisco, Napa Valley, Sonoma, Stinson Beach, and Atherton. For more information, you're welcome to visit www.butlerarmston.com. That's www.butlerarmston.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University's studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSE Radio. The recording engineer and production manager is Akshay Juggi. The assistant engineer is McGregor Joyner, and we're all assisted by Bryce Carter. The executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. The Modern Architect airs at 10 a.m. on Monday mornings on KZSU Stanford. Tune in again next week. Thank you. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of the modern architect.